If you're just joining us, we're talking with Kate Muth, actress, choreographer, director and founder of the dance theatre company, The Neopolitical Cowgirls. Kate Muth is the founder and artistic director of the award-winning dance theatre company, The Neopolitical Cowgirls. In their 13th year of devised theatre making, NPC continues to present bold, mind-bending theater that seeks to deepen and challenge the ways in which audiences experience theater. Committed to shining light on female-identifying theater makers, NPC produces and supports works by Women Plus in a myriad of ways to create parody on the stage. NPC's arts education outreach programming has been called crucial to our community, for their tireless work in using the arts to creatively address social injustice, education, and conflict. She trained in the prestigious arts leadership program at Lincoln Center, Circle in the Square Conservatory, and Shakespeare and Company, and is co-vice president of communications of the League of Professional Theater Women. She has worked as actress, director, and choreographer with such luminaries as Blythe Danner, Tony Walton, Simon Jones, Kathy Curtin, Liz Larson, Heather Lind, Joe Pintaro, Joy Behar, and others at Lincoln Center, John Drew Theater, Bay Street Theater, and other notable venues. Kate Smith, <laughs> welcome to the creative process. Thank you. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about your theatre dance company. I don't, you can tell me how I, we should characterise it, the mm -hmm. neopolitical cowgirls, how that came into being and some of your recent projects. Wow, thank you. Uh, you are so good. You have all your research done. Um, <laughs> neopolitical cowgirls started, uh, we're in our 12th year, and it started, uh, I am a trained actress, uh, dancer, choreographer, um, and it became obvious to me in auditions that um, things in the industry are not very fun. <laughs> it, it felt um, uh, more, I think there's too much human, uh, dragging human down in, in the act of uh, auditions or, or you know the company that we keep in terms of uh, being actresses. And the focus became on women just become afraid because we aren't being allowed to age naturally we're not allowed to um, have our wrinkles we're not allowed to have our body shift in any way shape or form that is authentic to life um, so this for me became problematic because it wasn't looking to be fun anymore. I didn't leave an audition and go, wow, that was really life-affirming. That, yeah. <laughs> that was a pleasurable experience. So I thought, you know, I am, I was a passionate actress. Um, I care very deeply about the arts, about theater arts. And so I had a choice to make, either leave it entirely or be the change, as they say, mm -hmm. right? As right. we've all heard. So. I started Neopolitical Cowgirls to um, embrace women in uh, in their story, in our story, 
Um, also, the numbers on Broadway, which is the highest celebration of theater that we reach and the most um, remunerative as well, generally speaking. Uh, the numbers of parody don't exist uh, there the way we want them to in terms mm -hmm. of man, men and women uh, being employed on Broadway. Really, even so, yeah. Even now, even with a lot of work being done. Um, we have, uh, you know, just a couple of new uh, big shows in New York happening that has, are the first ever all-female uh, design teams. Um, oh yeah, the behind the scenes yeah, as well. Right, as yeah, well. Exactly. A and lot of the crews. Yeah, we have a little. Have you talked about that? Yeah. Well, my mother had worked in theater and behind the scenes, oh, yeah. and also my stepdad oh. works in doing not theater, but my mom had done that. It's, it's an honor because it's the first time my mother sat in on an interview. Ah, oh, um, but uh, <laughs> I want to talk to you. <laughs> but talking about behind the scenes because my stepdad also works like for the television, the behind the scenes, mm -hmm. and it is a very it's a male shop, isn't yep. it? A lot of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, directing and all that. Yeah, it is, and you know. Um, when you think about like someone a genius like Julie Taymor on you, her Spider-Man right uh, show the one that she created she yeah. made it and she was the first to get canned <laughs> uh, when it came time to cut somebody um, uh, and so uh, you know the numbers aren't there it's like 70 at times 80% men that are hired on Broadway so in terms of parody, this is this is an issue. This also just means that women's stories aren't being offered up uh, on on stages. Our narrative is not happening. Um, I mean, think about it. How many times have films been reduced to being called chick flicks, and yeah. so they get uh, categorized into this position on a side where it means that men won't go, teenage boys won't go. Um, <laughs> that only it's only women's stories, so that our voices weren't making it to the table, whether politically, whether artistically, um, in just our day-to-day -day, um, exchanges in our workplaces. Right. So, neoplico cowgirls, you know, I, that's my tiny little <laughs> splash in in the time I have on this planet to try to put women's and, and marginalized people too, yeah. people of color, exactly. um, uh, transgender, yes. yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. yeah. What was fun about Andromeda, and talking about the process, right, yes. is, is taking a myth where some people would be like, yes, I've heard of the word Andromeda, but I don't know why, right, it's a constellation in the sky, and she appears very uh, quickly in, um, the myth of um, the the Odyssey, the Odyssey, I think it is. Um, in, it's one of the big, big, you know, yeah. all those uh, Greek myths of, of the stories that unfold and unpack a million characters. Mm -hmm. um, but she is so small in this in this journey. She's only named. However, <laughs> she's important enough to be sacrificed to die by Poseidon. She's important enough to be saved by the most beloved god of all, Perseus. Uh, she's important enough to be fought over. Um, she's important enough to be saved, whisked away, and um, burying hundreds of children to Perseus. Mm -hmm. But we never hear her speak. We never hear her side of the story, what she has to say, what her experience is. So it's already a very you know, creative challenge. 
fascinating because our curiosity mm. is aroused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. And mm -hmm. don't we we have a problem today, as we mm -hmm. all know, with um, when we read things, mm -hmm. fake news, what we believe, what we don't believe, what we automatically jump on the bandwagon with and say that's a true, that's that's a true thing. So when we know that these myths have been transferred down through the generations, um, whitewashed by the European uh, pen. Yeah, speak about that because her origins are not how we've, right. we've seen her, she's been yeah. betrayed. Yeah, she's, they're Ethiopian, yeah. she and Cassiopeia. And when you look at the movement of peoples, no, Ethiopia, <laughs> way back then, would have mm. been black people. Mm -hmm. And yet, I couldn't find one image, not one single image in my research of uh, Andromeda as a black woman, as a black girl, or her mother. They were all white. Right. So, what was what became a happy accident in the making of Andromeda mm -hmm. was for me the idea that black women today, black actresses, black storytellers, uh, they're refugees in their own stories. Do you know what I mean? They've right. been kicked out of their, their own stories that yeah. were from the beginning of time, when yeah. people first started writing. So Andromeda and Cassiopeia started our, our play as refugees, mm -hmm. as being women who have walked the earth for, we don't know, days, hours, years, eons, you know, sort of yeah. a timeless thing. But um, that's, that's the pleasure of in a creative process when you have someone named in the story and we know what happens to her. But what do we do if we turn that around and we say, if she could speak, what would she tell us the story was? So Andromeda Sisters, the name of that, um, came from a moment in Andromeda where Andromeda is pinned to the rock by Poseidon about to be eaten by this vicious monster. Andromeda learned language from her mother, learned how to speak and how to appreciate words. Um, and so Andromeda uses rational communication <laughs> to talk to the sea monster, who in our case it turns out to be female, mm. and uses language to calm the spirit of the monster to go back down into the water. At which point, Poseidon's Nereid daughters, who were the subject matter of this fight to begin with, over beauty, right, mm -hmm. uh, swim to Andromeda and unchain her and let mm -hmm. her be free. So instead of, for us, instead of Perseus, the white male, on a, mm -hmm. you know, savior, uh, coming in, whisking in to save the day, this is how she got saved. Perseus still shows up, he's late. Mm -hmm. And and we also forgive him for that because it's okay for men to sometimes put their sword and their shield down and just be human and not have to have the responsibility of saving everybody. So that moment in time was illuminated for us because it's about women going in to save other women or help other women, encourage other women, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense or behoove them in any way. So... Andromeda Sisters is an arts and advocacy event that brings women together from all walks of life. And we have a panel about um, uh, these nonprofit organizations that serve women and families and uh, social justice causes, um, global or local. Mm -hmm. And then we have 
big lovely party mm-hmm. and everybody is able to talk to each other and and glean information from one another step up to sign up to volunteer for your organization whatever it might be and then we have an evening of performances of short one acts written by women identifying playwrights well I, I love it. there's a few things now that other calls up all these questions there's so many things I want to ask you but I would like to talk to you later because we're working as collaborating uh, curators on a project, a one woman, one vote, twenty twenty, which is a hundred years of suffrage. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so if we could talk about that, later. I would, I would love, love to, collaborate. to showcase your work and the nonprofits, the advocacy and the art. Thank you. Um, yes. And then other few things come up as you discuss language. I also want to discuss the role of dance and music and mm-hmm. just and describe that because that's quite prominent. I know in drama that language was 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 an essential part, but I want to discuss the other modes of expression. And then you mentioned beauty, and I know that our notions of beauty, um, I, I think that this is very important to yeah. the neo-political cowgirls as well. Yes, so. Yeah, yes, you, you're so perceptive. Um, it, one of the earliest things I remember talking about with our second project, which was Trojan Women Redux, taking the massive, beautiful poem of Trojan women. And uh, it was all physical, uh, very powerful, very physical. We had women who were you know, librarians, mothers, um, midwives, <laughs> women from all walks of life. And they were, it was all outdoors and it was very in the body, very physical, very powerful. It had all sorts of emotions of joy and pain and sorrow and rage. Um, but what we did at the end, instead of leaving the women weeping and wailing, which is what happens at the end of Trojan Women, we turned it around and said, what if instead of turning our rage on these men or on this one woman who has you know, caused these wars to be endless, caused our children to be murdered, what if we build something better, something new? What if we turn this energy into something uh, beautiful and, and powerful and we take our sorrow and our rage and we make it something transcendent? And it's a very esoteric moment in the piece uh, and it's they build birth and build uh, a huge mother Gaia puppet Um, and it's you know just symbolic of rage can either keep us weeping and wailing our uh, pain can keep us down it can keep us uh, one note for all of eternity or we can allow it to so you know, sow our tears and let it grow into something new, um, preferably something. In in my opinion, I know I, I say beauty a lot, and I don't mean it as the way our society sees it in magazines or the runways. Actually, beauty I think is so much softer, and um, you know, whether it's in a birthday cake or in our grandmother or in something beautifully sculpted. Um, I think beauty holds a lot more hope, but I don't think we look at it enough and I don't think we look for it enough mm-hmm. and I think we define it so so rigidly mm-hmm. that um, about perfection or yes exactly arbitrary notions of perfection yeah or... yeah and so one of the earliest things that we were working from is re 
owning the word sexy and what that is. And suddenly we saw these women, some of them, you know, matronly, some of them older, some of them, um, I don't know, we were from all walks of life. And they were so incredibly sexy in this movement. And they, you know why? Because at the heart of it, it was purposeful. It was powerful. It was clear that they were, whatever it was they were experiencing or sharing, they owned it. They felt it. They were authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think authenticity is probably, for me, the beginning place of real beauty. You know, that yeah. the kind that is um, in everybody. I mean, yeah. truly. I think, yeah, I think that when you're not, when you're existing for yourself, you know, and you're at ease in your own skin, I think that that's so beautiful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I've seen like, you know, 90-year-old women who are beautiful. Absolutely. And, um, and they have all that wisdom as well to go with it. They're not confused, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So, yeah, I do, I think it's very important. It's political, but it's, you know, social that we allow ourselves to redefine our notions of beauty. Yeah. Um, because, the, you know, I, it's, it's, it's terrible, you know, the way the beauty industry is, is aimed at, like, not looking at women after a certain age. Mm -hmm. after, and, it, and it's so, it's so arbitrary and it's so... I don't know. I find them very off-putting. Those magazines. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, have you ever seen like where they'll have like an advertisement for a wrinkle cream, and like the woman is like twenty-two years old that they're using it on? They, I find you know the yeah. the, the industry stokes fear at a yeah. very young age, so that I don't know about you, and mm -hmm. I you know you're much younger than me. I I know, but in my twenties. I, I was so full of fear and anxiety about how I was, you know, looking or aging. And it should have been the time I just felt the, the best. And mm -hmm. I should have been able just to have so much fun and enjoy the fact I had a great body. Um, my hair was just wild and, and long and red and wonderful. And, and yet, we are not trained to see what is impeccably right and wonderful with ourselves we are trained through this society to see things, anything, as uh, subpar, as not enough, as mm -hmm. a failure. Um, and I think we waste so much energy on these fears mm -hmm. that I know that at my age now, I, uh, without being too regretful, I just, I just like, wow, all so much precious energy that got wasted. Yeah, there have been uh, analysis when they say, when they they're talking about social media now and it, and and there's some positive things but that you know people um, young people's anxiety levels and they say it's mm. it's heavily um, it's it's a lot of the, it's the girls that are have anxiety issues yeah. that even these horrible video games that are about rape and murder or whatever but they're mm. not about comparing yourself mm. and I mean I think that's destructive in its own way it's yeah. not, but it's not about damaging your self image but the, the, the way young women are using social media what it's all this competition and all these fake candid photos that are actually airbrushed and, mm -hmm. and how that makes you feel so I'm, I'm really grateful that I didn't come up during that period of um, intense uh. self scrutiny and the mixed messages that are given behind likes or mm -hmm. loves or comments. Like I see a lot on Instagram mm -hmm. because I have a teenage son mm -hmm. 
so I'm still a fit name. Yeah. He yeah. he's actually eighteen, he's in his first year of college, oh. but he's you know, he's eighteen. And so I have this little insight to this world and a, a, these young women and I love these girls. These are mm-hmm. girls I care about very deeply. You work with young women. I yes. work with young yeah. women and and I, I know I'm, I'm one to say, like, shine, you know, love yourself up. But the the photos are so, um, they're bullshit. Yeah. They're bullshit. They're not honest. They're not, uh, they're not relaxed. They're always extremely posed or duck-faced, you know. Yeah. Or, um, and it's, and I see in the comments then, it seems very important that they're saying things like sexy mama, gorgeous, beautiful. Like, we are so, and I understand this, believe me, as a woman, I understand it. I'm, I'm in this society as well, and I'm in this brutal industry. You know, granted, I don't play at those levels, you know, I, I took myself out of that. But, but still, the imperativeness that these young girls feel... <sighs> To have these words, this feedback given publicly is really important to them. Um, and the more they give it to each other, then it means the more they get it from each other. Um, and it's just, um, I even see it in women my age, you know, I, I you know, have friends where it's very important for them to be told they're beautiful or hot or sexy or whatever in a very public way. It's right. really painfully important. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be we were more subtle as a society, and we the idea of posting endless photos of yourself yeah. Yeah. was just kind of seen as crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, was seen as extremely extreme narcissism. Well, and I think there's and been studies on that. Yeah, have you read that? There's yes, yeah. been studies that says you know people who post redundant selfies. Mm-hmm. Are, are narcissistic um, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's true and I also think in some cases it's it's severe lack of self-worth it's mm-hmm. and fear I mean I think it's a myriad of things and you know for all the good technology has done in some ways in other ways it's really done a lot of damage and you know it's it's like this uncontrollable thing that we feed into and, and that's one other thing about neoplical cowgirls is we, so much of what we do is very rooted in the earth, in nature, whether the show literally is outdoors. Yeah, that, those are amazing. Mm, yeah, thank in you. And yeah. Engaged. Yes, yeah. We, we, you know, for me, the earth is the beginning place <laughs> for a lot of these stories. And I think the more we can, you know, when we sit in grass, we hear a story out under the stars, we can more readily allow for our own humanity to kick in, our, our deepest sense of humanity, which is not technological. Mm-hmm. It's connected to the grass and the trees and the air and the stars, and we're fine, we find our place in, mm-hmm. in that. And, and there's this, it's almost like having this great you know, two-hour massage, if you will, of just being able to let go and forget. Um, about technology, about being plugged in all the time. And um, so many people are like in awe about 
shows that are shows that happen outdoors and for me it's like no 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 we're just going back to the beginning this is how it was at the very beginning we told stories and yeah and the way the the theaters were designed Mm -hmm. that we were part of it it's participatory it's so interesting to stage out in montauk these wild places and and I think about when you talk about technology that we're so used to seeing things with the screen, so already you're, you're separated. There That's is right. this glass right. or sanitation, or sa- sanitizing the experience. And so that if you can break that, and I know that a number of your um, productions are also do involve the audience in a way, whether it's voyeur, so there is that sense, but, or they're, whether they're wearing masks, or whether they're, you're, you're coming out into the audience, um, yeah, and, and, and I noticed from the, the feedback of, of audiences that they feel exhilarated by it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and you know, we don't, you know, so many times people want to take the approach to creativity with theater of what do I want the audience to feel? Mm-hmm. We don't do that because I, we can't control that. I can't right. control what you feel. All I can be on top of is how how do I feel in this, in the telling of this story? How does this story um, make me feel? And how best can we, you know, highlight the story of this music, dance, text sometimes, you know, we're, we're text light usually. But um, uh, aerialists, you know, mm-hmm. we have aerialists for Balbo. Mm-hmm. Yes, your latest. Um, so how can we use visuals and sounds and or touch or yes. proximity mm-hmm. to help human beings just really expand into the what it is to be human mm-hmm. and your story might be completely different than what i'm used to but it doesn't matter because the common link is that we're all human and we we all could be easily in that story like um you know working on andromeda with the idea of being a refugee if we, you know, this might be a little bit of an extension of that word and how we understand that word to be, but we all are looking for home our entire lives. Mm-hmm. Whether that home means in ourselves, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find peace and balance in myself and not to be, you know, like you're talking about as we get older, we kind of have ourselves more and we're, we're, we're not putting up with the outside bullshit. We're a little less shakable. Mm-hmm. We're always, I think, trying to find our home, whether that be with our family our lovers, um, our dreams, um, and granted, in many refugee cases, especially when you look at the world today, there's incredible danger, there's death, there's great suffering, um, but I think in our search, there's always suffering. I think without that suffering, we don't uh, find anything, you know, and, and in terms of just like our own personal search for our home. But this is why I don't understand why anybody could be so incredibly uh, uh, judgmental and repulsed by the refugees in our world today. Yeah, it takes the yeah. smallest bit of understanding of what it is to be suffering or to be seeking for a home or a place or safety. It's, a, it's astounding to me. And, and so, you know, in talking about these things, and we, it's, uh, looking out at the world is, is, is where our work you know, likes to live in that pool of observation and and seeking for understanding mm-hmm. as well. 
No, it, I think that I, I mean, some people are on the line about that, whether art should serve a purpose or should be aesthetic. For, but I mean, I don't think it, I mean, the, look at the world we're living in now. I don't think it can help but being political or having some kind of benefit. You know, if it's been created with heart, you know, not for like just commercial returns, but it's been created with heart, then it can't help but move people and increase understanding. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I do think that that is definitely one of the importance in the arts. That's one of the key aspects. I wanted to go back to you because you were talking about young women, and I know you have this wonderful initiative, January Girls, and I was wondering, you know, what you like to impart to them. What's the structure of that program, and how did that evolve? Yeah, it should might be something you might even be involved with. Again, we'll talk yeah. about that. <laughs> we have yeah. a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, January Girls started, and I'm going to be quite blunt. Mm-hmm. Why and how? Um, I was working in the East Hampton High School. Uh, on, with immigrant girls right. for um, a multicultural day that they celebrate at Guildhall. All right. Um, and it was really interesting. I, I've worked with people from all walks of life, homeless Vietnam vets, um, seriously physically and mentally challenged people, um, uh, old people, young people, just all walks of life. And I couldn't believe how... <laughs> stupid I was when I went in to work with these girls um, and, and it's not you know it is what it is I was stupid um, I went in and we were going to ideally jump in this could be for six weeks of uh, workshops and I wanted them I wanted to help them tell their story about how they came here and there was a reason because I actually was interested in knowing more about their culture, knowing more about where they came from. And these girls, some who didn't speak any English, so through interpreters, the stories they had were so, so painful yeah, that we couldn't really touch it. One girl said, if I told my story of how I got here, I would cry and cry because a man has destroyed my life. This is a 16-year-old girl. Another girl had her little sister abducted and held at gunpoint and held for ransom. Uh, thankfully, they were able to get her back safely, and now that girl also goes to the high school. I was told about a boy who, crossing the border with his family, had to step over his dead mother and keep walking. So. So these stories weren't going to get told in the way that I was used to helping yeah. people. And, but what was beautiful, I thought, we were able to then work together. Instead of each of them making a big monologue, they said one, one line of text. I love Bon Jovi, was one of them. I am proud of my mother. Um, I love soccer. I have hopes. I have dreams. And so we made a tapestry where they stood on stage, which took tremendous courage for these girls, who, even though they had each other, they, they didn't yet know they had each other. Because some of them, you know, Dominican Republic, Argentina, they're from vast places, completely different places in the world. Of, and how they got there, and how they were doing now, was all over the map. 
the isolation was tremendous. Um, so for them to stand on the stage together, and, and they would each say this one line of text in Spanish, and then they said these last little bits of uh, text together mm-hmm. as a unit. And they succeeded. They did it. They showed up. And afterwards, their elation was over the moon. Over the moon. They had made this step. So in seeing this pocket of humanity, girls, for, in their formative years, being faced with families torn apart, families faced with death and violence, jobs. You know, some of these people, some of these girls came from families that were head merchants in their cities, you know, wealthy. And, and, and the, it's all walks of life. Yeah, they had to leave it all behind. Though. They leave yeah. it all. Mm-hmm. This one girl said they had a, this huge cheese factory. Mm-hmm. Very a great cheese, and the guerrillas, the guerrilla warfare uh, armies took it over, kicked mm-hmm. them out, took it all, so they fled. So, when Trump became president, there was an unfortunate series of events that day at the high school, of certain locals calling out oh, to yes. immigrants, saying you're gone, you're out, Trump's gonna take you and your family's out, you're bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we started January Girls mm-hmm. as a place for initially immigrant girls to feel friendship, to find support in our community, to find a place that wanted them, that welcomed them, so that school, and granted, there's a lot of good in, in these schools as well, but the fact that anybody would feel threatened by anybody that they have to walk past in the school mm. is sickening. So it was just another place for them to feel they had community. Mm-hmm. And the, the structure of it was it's simply for you know Saturdays in January, but it's free. We bring in a teaching artist. Um, we start with journaling. We have a prompted journal on a theme. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they can write in Spanish, English, they can draw pictures, whatever they want to do. And then we get together and have a conversation together mm-hmm. about that theme. Mm-hmm. And then we make art around that theme. It might be a yeah. film, might be a dance, right. might be theater, might be. They did this be- One of my favorite things is they did this beautiful portrait drawing of each other, and they would just mm-hmm. look at each other and draw portraits. Um, so what was great that came out of that were some of these girls saying we would leave there and say I have a new friend I have somebody you know that I know mm-hmm. that I know and it just would break down these walls so January girls now is still it is wide open arms wide open come mm-hmm. join us for art and friendship but we say it's it's between the ages of 6 and 106 because mm-hmm. We wanted to reach the allyship uh, out a little wider. Sure, exactly. We want older women. We feel like they're they needs... mentor them. Yes, yeah. and vice versa. You know, it's yeah. interesting because the ageism thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Ageism goes in all directions. Um, but I wanted to. I'm really interested in breaking down the idea of. Um, the, these generational walls that are perceived in just who we call our friends, who we spend our time with, who we talk to, who we don't, who um, 
we view as allies. Who can mm-hmm. we trust? And I feel like the earlier we can get these walls, generational walls, broken out of the way, then we can really raise girls who can find joy and wisdom and information and from, from anybody. Yeah. And that older women, mm-hmm. elderly women who are, the numbers are really, really bad, mm-hmm. in America at least, I don't know about globally, but for women as we become old, mm-hmm. the level of poverty is, is off the charts. Um, it kind of goes back to the parody of Broadway. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it sucks in both departments. Um, that as women get older, especially if they're alone without a mate, um, chances are, you know, very high that we're going to end up in poverty. Um, so how can we just, you know, smudge it all up and break it all open and bring everybody to the table so that we're not we have this tendency to want to compartmentalize all the time about who's our friend who we hang out with who we talk to who we listen to and it's not healthy <laughs> you know yeah. the, the 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 older you know you know going two generations up the older women have so much to share and sometimes more wisdom than you know your, your parents your parents are busy working full-time mm-hmm. and I I certainly grew up in a multi-generational family and it's more common for um, uh, non-American, yeah, family, absolutely. Immigrant where you have the multi-generation, and you actually look after your grandparents, or they live with you. Yeah. You know, it, they're not sent into homes, and because, and I think it's it's unfortunate that that we have this other trend towards you know separating. We just have the nuclear family because there's so much wisdom that's lost. So why are we throwing that out? And often they have the time to share that wisdom because they're not required to work. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I think it's a huge loss for most American families Mm -hmm. um, because you're right. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. When my son was a baby, I used to take him, his grandparents on both sides were far away. And I used to take him to the senior citizen home <laughs> yeah. so that he would have elderly in his life and he wouldn't be thinking they're weird or they're different or they're, mm-hmm. you know, but just to keep that, that blending and that openness of, of humanity, you know, yeah, exactly. moving through. Um, I so agree with that. Uh, so much wisdom as we get older. Yeah, I wish we valued wisdom and cultural more. wisdom too. We get we we, we we lose all that, you know. Yeah. Um, Where were you raised? Well, I was born in America, but I've been in. Um, I do know many people who are raised with the multi. I mean, and in comparison to my family, there's other families I know that you know with this. They have these huge extended families, uncles and aunts and distant aunts and they get together once a week like 50 people <laughs> you know? it's like oh it's just like a normal party yeah. we, we, yeah. we just do that once a week yeah. <laughs> I and and like that I'm kind of jealous of that you know do you have siblings I do I have to, uh, two siblings so um, mm-hmm. you know but I'm distant in Europe so I'm, I'm also cut off from a lot of that too yeah. I want to discuss uh, some. We sp- discussed um, Balbo. Uh, Balbo. Bal- Balbo. Mm. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, and some. Uh, I want to discuss some of your uh, other works. Voyeur. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about that because I'm that presentation. To. Yeah. Um, so Voyeur had three incarnations. 
One was at Guildhall, um, which was in different spaces and rooms, um, and the audience moved to watch what was happening in each room. Mm -hmm. One of them was in the bathroom, one was in a stairwell, dressing room, um, yeah, all around. Um, and then the second incarnation was the production in the barn, where, which is actually was the thing I was working for, working towards, was having the action of the performers happen inside the space and the audience is on the outside looking through windows to look in. Um, that that um, came out of, to be honest, when I was a, a child, I loved looking in people's windows. Um, my therapist, when I was older, told me, because I wasn't looking for like, you know, uh, things like people naked or having sex. It wasn't. I was fascinated by watching them do mundane things, washing the dishes, watching television. Um, and my therapist later on told me, she goes, oh yeah, that, that's, pretty, you know, I understand that. She goes, you are looking to see if your family was normal or not, you know, trying to... You're comparing. Yeah, comparing. And trying to see how other people... Well, plus, you know, I'm, I'm in the theater, I'm an actor. We're, we're obsessed with watching people. You know, we love watching people. And... Well, it is very voyeuristic, you know. It is, right? Wall, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the third incarnation was in Berlin, and it took place in this gallery space of several rooms and a loft and then out in the back. Um, each of them different, but the one that really had a, a story to it was the one in the barn. Um, and it was about two little girls, uh, friendship. And they start outside playing, outside under this beautiful big old oak tree. And you see them lying on the ground looking up naming what they see in the clouds like children would they wrote had like little things that they wrote to each other little like friendship love poems and they were dancing around and then music started and they run into the first room of the barn and the audience is still on the outside and inside is this magical room and they're on this little um, almost like a merry-go-round. It's got mm -hmm. stars on it, mm -hmm. and they're seated on it, and it's turning around, and you're just watching this like glorious dream of pretty much the way, if, if you had a happy childhood or happy moments in your childhood, it's the way you kind of remember it, looking back in your memory. You know, lights and little stars twinkling, and they're reaching for stars, and they're having delicious fun. But one of the girls comes running outside, mm -hmm. but the other girl doesn't follow. Mm -hmm. She stays inside. So one girl's on, on the outside, one girl's on the inside. That girl on the outside now starts with vague yet um, vaguely and specific uh, text, short text, like a four-line poem, if you will, introduces each next um, scene, which happens every two window panes. So the audience moves, so here would be one scene here, and the next two window panes would be the next scene. And what you see is that little girl getting older and older and older and mm -hmm. older. Yeah. And so in the next window pane, it's her as an adolescent girl mm -hmm. developing sexually 
and fantasizing about this beautiful boy mm-hmm. who's overhead, and he's this parkour guy. He's really great. So it's almost like he's in her thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then the next frame is her getting married. Mm-hmm. The next frame is her as a woman holding a baby that turns out to not be there. Mm-hmm. And then the next frame is her as an old woman in with her old her old husband alone in this big um, bedroom with this big brass bed, and them you know dancing together, trying to hold on to one another in mm-hmm. their in their old sadness, if you will. Yeah, you know, um, and and that's where it ends. It's a twenty minute meditation. Oh. That one. Essentially 20 minutes. Um, music was on the outside, a little text from the little girl introducing each. Um, I, I have to say it might be one of my favorite pieces because it's actually very much, uh, you know, in me as from my friendship with my best friend when I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think our first friendships at least for girls, where we really fall in love with our girlfriend at a young age. I feel like that relationship really lays down a lot of important turf for how we behave or uh, what we want in our relationship to our our lovers as we get older. Um, That's just me. And, And there was a break, you know, that I couldn't control and I had no say over or any way to fix it that happened between my girlfriend and me when I was in, when we were in sixth grade. And it was uh, heartbreaking to me. And it, you know, we, we just loved each other dearly as friends. It wasn't a sexual thing, but we, we, you know, we were, we were learning about sure, the world you spend together. spend an immense amount of time together Absolutely. compared to your friendships as, yeah. as adults. I That's think. right. Yeah. And it lays down that really um, intractable uh, way of viewing things in our mind you know we're such mm-hmm. sponges at yeah. that age so it's not like we're looking at things like I choose this or I choose this it's just literally being imprinted upon us so that's probably one of my favorite pieces because though it was esoteric in many ways it actually people really responded to it um, and um, and it's probably one of I mean all of my pieces are personal mm-hmm. but that one was deeply deeply personal yeah. yeah I think it's strange because we do live in a very voracious society though now it's mostly mediated by devices but I have a few memories do you, <laughs> do you remember a moment I used to run into I don't know I used to love this I was must have been but it was all innocent I when yeah. we'd, I'd go into the public bathroom somewhere and she'd take me in and I, I I'd run away from her and I you know because I love this you know hide and see you know in the bathroom you have you can see the yeah, feet yeah, yeah, yeah. and I would bend down and I'd say I <laughs> see you and I think I tried to oh, I, I, love I it. must have been so many people wet their pants <laughs> good for you well I was three I mean You're I stopped yeah. a few years ago <laughs> No, no, it's not how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I remember we are voyeurs. We're not. We're, 
and then we learn, oh, the accepted modes we're not supposed to watch. But I remember being told a few times, oh, you're not supposed to look at people. You're you're staring at people, or you're. Mm. It wasn't mean. I was just that yeah. fascinated. You're drinking them in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you know. children are the. This is what's so fascinating about children, because even though we are all children, mm-hmm. we we don't belong to that world anymore. Yeah. It's a different. They're aliens. We're alien. <laughs> We're kind of these alien we learn creatures. We to be human. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. Or we get Normal. socialized, or yeah. for better or worse, uh-huh. right? I mean, because if you think back to like what you're talking about and how you were seeing things, how if I were the adult seeing you, mm-hmm. I would never have thought, you know, been able to enter that world of what you're actually seeing and thinking, and I would just yeah. be seeing, oh, a staring child. How rude, right? Yeah. But that's that's why that's why I think when we become adults we get broken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really think we become broken um, because we we allow for ourselves to be socialized in a way that that cuts away from our curiosity, cuts away from our instincts to to know, to mm-hmm. understand, to to see. Yeah. And and we put ourselves in boxes so that we become distant from humanity. Instead of maybe asking a man in a wheelchair, what happened? Mm-hmm. We're told, don't do that. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to pretend like he's not like that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pretending that we do as adults. Mm-hmm. Whereas children are much more bold and brave. They just put it out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I prefer that <laughs> yeah because it, it's genuine and the care is genuine and sometimes the cruelty because children yeah. can be cruel that's right but it's it's very in- interesting because then theater dance movement becomes a place of innocence mm. uh, exploring innocence or or drama as well Kate Muth pairs activism and art in her creative output, challenging issues of female sexualization, racial bigotry, and the unjust treatment of immigrants in order to uplift and inspire her audience. The Neopolitical Cowgirls, nonprofit theater company dedicated to projecting the female voice and establishing points of intersection in our shared human experiences, serves women, men, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people alike. Ms. Mood promotes love and a diverse narrative in her performances, showing both the people who attend her shows and the members of her company that we all belong in this world. January Girls, a program focused on providing immigrants with a safe and creative space to explore their journey, furthers the mission of neopolitical cowgirls. Ms. Mood effectively pairs talent with passion and ends up with a fantastic organization that benefits all members of her community proving that social change is achievable through any avenue. Ms. Moot speaks about the anxieties of a younger generation of women bearing the burden of social media standards and professional pressures to alter oneself in order to win a role, maintaining that her company was founded on values of honesty and self-love rather than superficial competition. As a college student entrenched in the oftentimes damaging realm of false advertising and impossible expectations, I found Ms. Mood to be a voice of steady support for me. She reminded me that when we love ourselves and our communities, 
you can find a shared spirit that grounds us in times of tension. She creates more than beautiful dance, shaping a safe space for female identifying people and their supporters. Ms. Muth noticed the needs of her small town and filled them. She's an inspiring force, and I look forward to hearing more about this powerful and compassionate leader and her future projects. team as well and then you bring mm -hmm. others in for projects mm -hmm. yeah it's a little fluid I have people that we work with regularly um, sometimes it depends on if they're available mm -hmm. you know to work on a particular project um, well I don't do it I don't audition the way <laughs> the the way I you know left the industry of auditioning um, I will generally talk to someone like like this mm -hmm. and we usually get tea or a beer or something mm -hmm. and we yeah. sit down and we figure out do we are we on the same page mm -hmm. about how we tell stories um, mm -hmm. am I do I find that there's a depth to this person right. where we can really that they're willing to dig into in the process and then we might have part two where we might go into a rehearsal studio with you know a lot of other people auditioning as well and we'll play, and we'll either I give them some choreography, or my uh, if I bring on someone else to choreograph something, she will give her the cho them the choreography, and then we just play, and we have fun, and we dig, and we um, discover, and so that no matter what, when that person leaves that audition, they don't just feel like they were used, they don't feel like they're coming in just trying to get inside my head because that's ridiculously unfun. Um, but that we've worked together respectfully as artists and that we've all learned something, we've had some growth and we've discovered something about ourselves and each other. Um, I think it's really important to respect artists in that way um, because I remember, it's still, it's still like this. If I go and audition, I hate auditioning. If I go to audition and it just feels flat, it feels like you know people are sitting behind a table or it's the assistant to the assistant of the casting director, and then they just sit there and they go, okay, thank you, boom, you're out. You know, it is such a, a, a fucking disrespectful thing to do to an artist, mm -hmm. is to act as if their time and their effort means nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't care how bad they are. That doesn't matter to me. The fact that they're giving something from themselves, that's the gift. And, and truthfully, that's the thing that you probably can work with or not work with, is mm -hmm. their intentions and how they're there and why they're there. Sure. That doesn't mean I cast people whose work, you know, I don't think is very good. It's just not the time for us to work together. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't, I think I care less about what they look like in terms of height or weight. I care more about how connected they are to the story that we're telling. How much skin in the game can they put? Because that's how I work. I, I, I want to work from what's your life experience? How do you tune in to this character? And then give from that. 
And also because I understand that your scripts are works in progress that may be evolving, that it seems like casting directors might be missing out on things when they're just like looking for a narrow type or something, when they could actually be using that as a learning process to seeing, oh, those are all the different possible interpretations yeah. of that role. That's right. Maybe I can add them. How can, can I absorb that and to make it have more depth? Unfortunately, yeah. and this is a broad blanket statement, mm-hmm. but I stand behind it as being true for probably 90 95% of casting directors, is they're not that creative. Mm-hmm. They're looking at time is money, money is time, boom, 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 throw that person in, throw that person in. Time is, is not our friend when it comes to you know producing mm-hmm. things, unless you make it a, mm-hmm. a priority, right? Yeah. And um, the thing is that the interest isn't there Mm-hmm. to do that they're looking for the, nine times out of ten people are looking for the name that will sell the most tickets sure yeah and the Broadway particularly yeah. uh, but even off Broadway even you know a lot of casting directors love agents they want you if you're trying to get represented by them they they want you to come already with uh, your your fans they want you to have success by you know that translates into financial success they want your fame they also now want they'll look at your instagram followers how many followers do you have like principal ballerinas were telling me it's disgusting oh it's not like how you dance right 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 they want you to have a built-in following because they're essentially wanting to ride your tails yeah um and if that's the way people are thinking that they're making art, I say bullshit. That's not making art. That's you know that's that's pandering to to get as much money as you can and to get you know it's the cart before the horse and it's um, to me that's not fun and that's mm-hmm. what makes people cutthroat in ugly ways and that's what makes people um, it makes the industry sinister in a lot mm-hmm. a lot of ways in how it gets created and it's. I, life is too short. I, I want to have fun. <laughs> and yeah. so do you find, because I know you've, brought, you've had productions in the city and in and, and other cities and other countries, um, do you find it's been liberating since you've been out here working in the Hamptons? I know you've worked with some amazing people too, like Blythe Banner, but mm-hmm. also you know less known artists, but does that free you up from some of those pressures you might have had in the city? It's interesting. Um, I like Europe for that reason. That's where I feel free. Yeah. I, I love European audiences mm. because they're hungry mm. for it. They're open-minded to it. They don't need a star name for a draw. They'll come because mm. they're interested. They'll stay after and talk for hours about it. You have to like oh, yeah, chase. Serious. Yeah, you got to chase them out. <laughs> um, and I love that. Um, New York, when I took uh, Eve to New York... And, uh, you know, I, I'm really proud of that because we had 28 shows off-Broadway, um, two casts, mm-hmm. like, you know, 30-some people. It's a huge amount of people. Yeah. A lot of juggling. And I was really proud of that production. I'm still incredibly proud of that production. I would like to see it up again, probably. Um, and let me tell you... <laughs> Whether it's the reviewers, and I'm not even talking about reviews themselves. I'm talking about what it takes, um, you know, how you have to treat them when they get in the door. Mm-hmm. Whether it's reviewers, whether it's other performance companies, whether it's 
people in general, they would rather shoot you in the head than actually be like happy for you having a show in New York off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? It does take a lot. It's huge. Yeah. But it's incredibly cynical. And, and I say this on the other hand because on the other hand, I also feel that New York as a, as, you know, a theater person in New York, when you're off Broadway, there's a delicious amount of support that happens between theater companies, like really wonderful. But if you particularly are a woman, I'm guessing this is, (laughs) I can't help but know that this probably plays into it, that you, you get the money together and that's really hard. Uh, you make it happen and you make something unique that how dare you have this in such a unique voice that people are going I've never seen anything like this before you know and they seriously would rather knock you in the head than to pay you a compliment or to say hey let's I'm going to tell my friends about this or I'm going it's really um, incredibly hellish <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and I, I kind of feel like, well, you can either either keep feeding into that and being part of that, or you pull away and you demand and you make something different, right? And, and that doesn't mean that what we do now is easy or the exact opposite, but I'm, I'm, you have to change the paradigm. You have to be the paradigm change if, if it's going to change at all. Um, we also have to show each other, women, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to be brutal to each other. We can celebrate each other. There's room for everybody. There's, it takes nothing off of my, my feelings of accomplishment to praise you or to celebrate you or to lift you up or help you get further. Um, it, it's astounding. The Hamptons, you know what happens in the Hamptons is <laughs> it's a little pool. And so to be a big fish, even if it's that in a little pool, I'm not even interested in that. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is then those little fish start trying to pull you down. Right. Which is ridiculous because instead of saying, oh, I can learn from you, or maybe we could work together, or maybe we could help each other out, you know, there, and it's not everybody, there's just, you know, enough of them that makes me go, this is just a pain in the ass. Because it's, it's like, People just don't want to celebrate each other. They don't want, they just can't. It's too unbearable. It's too unbearable for some people. It pains them so much to help another or to praise another or give credit where credit's due. I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate and blessed to have uh, my husband. Yes, Josh Gladstone. Yeah. Um, also a director. A director that we've been able to work together. You know, we trained. We we worked our asses off to get what we have to be where we are. Which is, you know, where is it? <laughs> it's dust. You know what I mean? Which is nowhere. We all end up dust. We all we all die. Uh, you know, what is it to have ambition? Um, I think it's it's potentially very uh, painful to have ambition. Well, you've built a, a wonderful creative community, a creative family. Yeah, thank you. I, I thank you. I, I feel that. And people who aren't afraid of that or who don't feel they have to put themselves into competition with that, partake in that. And then we have, we do, we have this incredible 
family of, of incredibly talented people. Um, but, you know, being in a smaller place, you have the, the challenge is that the ceiling is much lower in many ways, right? right? Because the challenge isn't there or... Mm -hmm. I think that's oh, you why you feel like you're in an aquarium. Someone, yes, yes, yeah. I, it's hard to explain, but it does. And it starts feeling like those people, you know, it's Hollywood East out here, right? Mm -hmm. That the people you do know that are looked up to in the art world of any genre somehow now are the tastemakers, right? Well, you know, I, I don't. I'm not a sycophant. I, I won't be a sycophant. And I feel like the minute I feel like I'm trying to please other people or a certain idea or a certain group of people, then I've lost my compass as an artist. I should not be making my art to try to get approval from this person, that person, those people. Um, and yet that's somehow somewhere that's what we feel we need, right? It's like a, a serious battle. Right, so now just just closing on, because we are an educational initiative at the creative process, so I was wondering if you have, I, obviously you've shared some of your messages for you know young women with your January Girls Project, but you know in general, you know, actors or artists beginning now, you, do you have a message for them, you know, advice, things that have really, um, held you in good stead you know important teachers or collaborators or fellow actors performers um, you know what what did they share with you what you know what are some of those experiences that you'd like to yeah. well for me it's more uh, of what I feel I've found and that is and I say this to a lot of young actors or theater makers artists in general make your own work right you have to yeah make your own work because it puts us in a terrible position to be standing there with a handout waiting to be approved of enough to be granted a job or loved enough to and when we are striving for that approval we're not ourselves anymore we're off our mark as who we are authenticity like what we were talking about before I think every artist no matter what your genre needs to know how to make your own work a lot of times actors are, can't do anything unless they're handed a script. Right. They don't even want to. They don't even want to imagine anything else. But they're here. And, and I understand that, and that's, and that's a thing. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a dangerous place to stay because then you're always reliant on someone else viewing you a certain way. I would say that. And I also, the other part of that is... Um, we, we have to know ourselves better, mm -hmm. and we have to love ourselves better. And I don't mean that in a you know, hoo-ha way. I mean that literally so that we can stand on what we know our skills to be. And we have to be unshakable enough that we can be rooted in place and then as actors, as performers, reach out into these other places of experiences of you know, making crazy faces and, and stretching our, our human existence into, um, in front of the zeitgeist. Not, you know, it's not about where are we now, what's hot now, and how can I be part of what's hot now. We have to be in front of the zeitgeist. We have to be the ones tearing down the walls of where we want to be. 
not just where everybody's getting you know hot and so that we're copying everybody we need to have the ideas that launch further and I think this is imperative in our world today where artists it is I, I do feel uh, it is very much our job as artists to be political and to find solutions and to get the conversation of humanity rolling and uh, really massaging it into a healthy place where we are killing each other for the stupidest of reasons. I think it absolutely is our requirement as artists to do that. Um, so we have to be fearless. So I, I think we have to really try to sow the roots of, of being fearless and unshakable as art makers, as actors, as performers. Um, you know, it's not to create a, a bloated ego of not being able to move, but it's meant to make a healthy ego where we can stand and deliver, and we can stand and imagine, and we can stand and, and open our arms and invite everybody in without fear. Um, I know this sounds so esoteric, it's just, um, I don't, I can't separate the human condition from my work, my creative work. And how would we, you know, encourage more creativity and the arts in our education system where it's now being you know, defunded? Plucked and, away, yeah. yeah. That's a tricky one. Um, I, you know, in a place like this, I, I taught drama as an adjunct in the Montauk School for 16 years. It was part of their program right. in the schools, which is so rare, so super rare, as I'm sure you know. But this is what I'm doing now educationally because we have so many issues here, even you know, in little Podunk, uh, East Hampton, Sag Harbor, that we need to be supporting, such as teen suicide, such as drugs and alcohol abuse, um, such as this um, incredible anxiety our children are, are feeling, the immigrant population and their feelings of isolation. Um, elderly, all of these issues. So <laughs> what I've started doing is just creating the content to um, put another net under some of these issues and I pitch it to the schools. The thing is we have to find our own funding, right? Mm-hmm. So we're finding the funding to implement these activities so we can make them free to the kids Yeah. after school. Sometimes you can get it into the school uh, mm-hmm. day. Yeah. But there's also this oversaturation of activities for kids happening, mm-hmm. right? So I guess that's a good problem to have, I think. Mm-hmm. But, but are they all addressing the issues that you're speaking Exactly. Um, no, mm-hmm. they're not. And I also fundamentally feel, as I'm guessing you probably do, very passionate that arts uh, saves lives. Yeah, I mean, we have an inner city school program, after school yeah. open mic events, and yeah, it's exactly, right. yeah. I mean, to be heard, to mm-hmm. tell your story, to give witness to a story, mm-hmm. all of these things vi- like, literally vibrationally change us, change yeah. us. And then, you know, it, it again breaks down those walls, right, where we can have understanding start seeping in instead of feelings of difference. If I hear you speak your story, I'm like, oh my God, I, I felt the same thing. Or even if I didn't feel the same thing, I can go, okay. She's, she's sharing this incredibly poignant story. Um, it, it gives us all a chance to open, open up, right, as our human, and let our humanity come and go. 
I think I have a problem with how institutions often treat arts education. Yes. I have a huge problem. It doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't no. serve a... It's time. Yeah. It's an event so parents can come, you know, I, I, I don't if I can say this off the record, you know, it's like um, decorating Christmas cookies. Okay, that's lovely. That's a one-off. And, you know, these things are needed and they're fun. But for me, there's an urgency. There's an immediacy. Well, there's the emotional well-being of your students and young people then, you know. It's like triage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I don't think institutions move quickly enough mm-hmm. to implement these things. And I don't think they have their their thumb on what's actually happening in the schools. Mm-hmm. And they don't have enough curiosity to ask the teachers, what do your students need? What are they talking about? What do you need? What's happening in your schools? And it changes every year. It's drastically different. But also in terms of academic excellence and what mm. we remember long term, I find, well, this is the way I learn. Everyone learn, has different ways of learning. But I find that I learn better with, well, exchanges like this, these discussions, but also when um, some element, some artful element makes the story explainable and, and memorable and mm-hmm. real to me. So instead of studying history as abstract, distant events, it's something I can I can relate to and understand, and then I then I will remember, and then I can implement it in the long term. Experiential, experiential yeah. learning, exactly. Uh, and so and so, I think you know, if 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 arts only function is just that, it actually makes learning all the other subjects more effective. That's right. That's yeah, right. And impacting. And how it opens up your imagination for problem yeah. solving. Yeah, so that right? actually you don't just memorize it, but yeah, how do you how do you move forward and then create something new from That's that? That's right. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that has been embraced by all school systems and it's um, you know, we're Do you we're find learning. it's like that in Europe or in France? Well, uh, yeah, France is France is a lot of by rote memory, but uh, they also also celebrate the arts quite a bit. But um, yeah, there is this sense of respecting the professor. Um, yeah, it's less participatory than, um, but there is an an immense amount of respect I have to say for the arts as yeah. well. You know, yeah. and it's not overpriced, and it's not you know Broadway tickets aren't you know right. like that. So I, I feel, um, you know, there's good and bad, and I think there's things we can learn from the American school system, but I also think that the way in Europe um, education is largely, well, it's practically free, it's unit yeah. tax, but you know, it's, practic- it's not prohibitively expensive to go to university if you don't come from a wealthy background, you know, yeah. you don't have to go into debt. Right, um, and we are doing that regularly here. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that that's right. I, I, it's, it's not right. Education should be for all, in my opinion. Healthcare should be for all. I agree. Yeah, I all. think education, healthcare, housing, mm-hmm. work, you know, jobs, yeah. all yeah. of these things that create uh, a life that keeps us healthy mm-hmm. and open-minded and, and free to to have a, a life to pursue happiness. Like, if you're my neighbor and, and that's, you know, you're doing well, I'm going to do better. It's the lifting all boats, you know? Right. Um, I, I can't even get it. Our, our nation is so sick, so mm-hmm. depleted and sick right now. Yeah. Um, and this is one reason I get that much more rabid about arts and education. Because to me, it is medicine. 
and it is triage. Yes, I often said that. Yeah, it is medicine. And that's why I'm so honored, and our project is so honored also to be invited here by Eric Fischel, April Gornick, and also in association with Guildhall because of um, what, what Eric and April are doing and also Guildhall for the, the community. It's to be a part of something like yeah. that. It's not just enough to, oh, um, I make my own work and I'm doing all right, yeah. but involving the whole community and then celebrating the historical you know, craftsmen and, and engaging all of the communities. You say immigrant communities yeah. or you know, the less privileged. Um, so I'm so honored to be a, a part of that. We've had wonderful interviews with the, the creatives from the community, and it's it's not over yet because there's so many, you know, across the different arts. So yeah, we'll be doing it. I think we're talking to to the way the church, to the library, yeah. to the, and then obviously the guild hall to, to show them the works that were done, um, the interviews, but also the collective works with the schools and the communities. Uh, thank yeah. you for being here, and yeah. thank you for doing this. It's really I can't wait to see you know what it is on the other side and to hear. All these voices. Um. Oh, we know. We're, we're, we're honored. And we'll be sharing this work on our traveling exhibition, so international. Excellent. Yes. Well, how much longer are you here for? I'm here until um, the uh, just around Thanksgiving. And and then I might stay in Manhattan for another few weeks for the interviews uh, because yeah. there are a lot of people there and I didn't get to schedule everything. Uh, you're ambitious. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but I will be coming back I because it's not finished. A lot of people had, you know, whatever, shooting schedules and yeah, all yeah, that it's stuff. Crazy. Um, but I want to thank you, um, uh, Kate Muth, thank you. Um, Neopolitical Cowgirls. Uh, thank you for being an advocate for social change, a voice of empowerment, you thank know, this, you. this wonderful um, artistic program you have. Uh, Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for caring. Want to get involved in interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.